Hi, welcome to the History Respawn podcast. I'm your host, Bob Whitaker. On today's episode, we'll be having a conversation with Esther Wright about her new book on rockstar games and American history. But before I get to that interview, I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the goings-on with historical games in the past couple of weeks. Uh, and in particular, uh, taking a look at the news that came out of UB Forward. Uh, this is Ubisoft's uh, kind of promotional event uh, that occurred back on September 10th. Uh, so this is obviously important uh, for people interested in historical games uh, because Ubisoft is the developer and publisher of the Assassin's Creed series. Uh, and so in addition to Assassin's Creed, they also uh, mentioned other games, discussed uh, future titles. Uh, and so it was a kind of a grab bag uh, promotional event building towards uh, a specific look at the Assassin's Creed series in the next couple of years. So I was just going to go through uh, some of the news uh, that came out uh, of this uh, promotional event. And this is following a article that was written up on Eurogamer. And uh, kind of the early bit of news that came out of this event was regarding uh, Skull and Bones, uh, which, as we've talked about on the show before, uh, is uh, Ubisoft's kind of long in development uh, MMO style pirate game. Uh, and, you know, this kind of this is a game that's supposed to come out uh, this year, uh, supposedly, I think, in uh, late October, early November. Uh, and the only kind of new bit of information that I got out of this uh, press release regarding Skull and Bones was the fact that it's going to be set in the Indian Ocean during the Age of Sail. Uh, so if you'll remember, this has kind of always been touted as a pirate game, you know, kind of classic golden age of piracy. And I assumed throughout that time that that meant uh, they would be in the Caribbean. Uh, but in fact, it looks like uh, the game's narrative, uh, kind of the multiplayer maps, etc., are going to be set in the Indian Ocean. So I, I think that's interesting. You know, there is a lot going on in the Indian Ocean, uh, particularly in the 18th century. And it's, uh, it's an area of the world that I don't think gets a lot of attention from, you know, uh, popular accounts about uh, history. Uh, you know, certainly there are some uh, shows and some movies uh, that relate to the activities of the British East India Company. Uh, in particular, you can think of uh, the Pirates of the Caribbean series from Disney. Uh, but, you know, I can't really think of a game uh, that has gone into this territory um, other than kind of a grand strategy game like uh, Total War Empire. Uh, so I think that's fascinating. Now, as far as the way the game looks, um, you know, it does have that naval combat uh, from Assassin's Creed Black Flag. Um, you know, it does look like uh, that sort of game uh, just kind of blown out of proportion into a multiplayer um, kind of setting. And so I'm really curious as to how that's going to pan out, how that's going to work. Um, you know, is that going to be successful to them? It, it does kind of feel like this project, which has been in development for a really long time, is all of a sudden getting rushed out of the door uh, for some reason. So... Who knows? Who knows what that means uh, for the final product? Um, the next bit of news is kind of a strange one. Uh, was that uh, Ubisoft announced at uh, this event that they are uh, in a partnership with Netflix, um, the streaming provider, 
and that uh, as part of this partnership, they are going to be releasing uh, a new Valiant Hearts game uh, for mobile devices. So uh, if you don't remember, uh, Valiant Hearts uh, World War One game uh, that was kind of a, I guess you could say kind of an indie title uh, in terms of its production value and in terms of its length. And uh, it's something that uh, was one of the first games that we covered uh, for History Respawn, I think back in 2014, 2015. Um, I did a solo episode <laughs> on Valiant Hearts uh, when it first came out. Uh, it was a solo episode that I was trying to get under uh, eight minutes uh, in order to attract YouTube viewers uh, to the show. And uh, this episode was one of our first big duds in terms of uh, of uh, viewership uh, because it was just me uh, talking for about, I think it was like six to eight minutes. Uh, and I remember the early view count on that video was like maybe 500 people. That was bad. Not great. Uh, but regardless of you know how popular that video was for History Respawn, uh, Valiant Hearts is a really good uh, historical game uh, it gives you a lot to kind of chew on when it comes to representation of the First World War uh, in games. Uh, it was kind of one of the first uh, recent titles, you know, in saying the last 10 years, uh, marking, uh, commemorating the uh, 100th anniversary of the First World War. Uh, and it's also a really good game, I think, to recommend to students or to recommend to other educators uh, for use in a class that might want to look at um, historical games rather than, you know, doing a historical movie or a book or something like that. Uh, because uh, Valiant Hearts was relatively inexpensive and it also ran on just about anything. Uh, and I, I want to say they also had a mobile version uh, for iPad and for, um, uh, you know, Apple devices, Apple iPhones. And so it's really exciting to me to hear that this uh, Ubisoft-Netflix partnership is going to lead to the release of a new Valiant Hearts game and that this Valiant Hearts game will also, uh, this new version, will also feature uh, developers uh, from that first game. I thought that first game was a huge success. And so it's really exciting to hear that there's a new one coming out. And uh, I'm really curious to see it. Um, and then in addition to... The news about uh, a Ubisoft and Netflix partnership for the development of a new game. Uh, we've also got news about an Assassin's Creed live-action series, uh, which will debut on Netflix at some point. Uh, and so, you know, this has also been kind of a topic uh, for History Respond. If you'll remember back when the Assassin's Creed movie came out uh, with Michael Fassbender. Uh, also known as Assassin's Creed, <laughs> that we covered that here on History Respond. And, uh, you know, so uh, we've had that film. Uh, it wasn't a huge success, wasn't a critical success or financial success. Uh, but apparently there's enough there to interest Netflix. And, uh, you know, they finance just about any show, live action, animated adaptation you can think of under the sun. So, you know, we'll see. I, I don't know. And, you know, how much are they going to, uh, you know, cleave to the stories in the games? I, I, I have no idea. Um, so that was kind of it for, uh, you know, the non-Assassin's Creed series news with Ubisoft. And so at the end of this uh, UB Forward events, uh, they cap things off with an Assassin's Creed showcase. And if you are interested 
and uh, seeing this showcase, you can go and you know type up Assassin's Creed uh, 2022 showcase, and it'll take you to uh, this segment. It's about a, I guess about a 15 minute segment uh, at the end of uh, Ubisoft Forward. Maybe it's a bit longer than that. I don't know. I, I don't have the uh, YouTube information right in front of me, but good bit of uh, information there was kind of a sizzle reel as part of this to celebrate the 15th anniversary of the first Assassin's Creed. Uh, and the sizzle reel uh, was filled with all sorts of uh, heavy-handed, uh, his story-infused slogans. Uh, so I'll read some off to you here. Uh, this video included things like, quote, history is your playground. Uh, also, uh, quote, leap into history. Uh, and then furthermore, be the thorn in history's side. Uh, and then uh, finally, quote, uh, the greatest playground, dot, 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 history. <laughs> uh, so a lot going on there, a lot of appeals to, um, you know, uh, historical uh, settings, a lot of appeals to uh, kind of uh, reliving the past, uh, you know, leaping into the past. And, you know, I think when we uh, talked to Esther at the end of this uh, episode, you kind of see uh, the ways in which these promotional slogans are important for kind of setting up the player's expectations. So there's quite a few of these slogans here <laughs> uh, coming in this uh, Assassin's Creed showcase. All right, so uh, what about the games? Uh, what did they talk about? Well, uh, the first big one is that they announced uh, the next Assassin's Creed main uh, main series game uh, called Assassin's Creed Mirage. Uh, and this is a game that is uh, going to come out in fall of next year, fall 2023. Uh, and this uh, story uh, in uh, Assassin's Creed Mirage, it follows Basim, uh, who is a major character in Assassin's Creed Valhalla. And uh, it follows him... Uh, in medieval Baghdad, uh, so I think just before the events of uh, Assassin's Creed Valhalla, uh, which is set in England. Um, and uh, from what they've said and from what they've shown uh, in the game's trailer, this looks to be a game that is going to uh, offer up something to uh, old players like me uh, who uh, miss the older version of Assassin's Creed, which is focused on stealth and parkour and uh, setting up assassination targets. And um, this uh, game Mirage uh, looks like it's going to be smaller scale, uh, maybe just focused on the city of Baghdad, uh, and then also kind of more... Uh, tightly focused on uh, a simpler narrative uh, than the kind of sprawling, complicated, multi-layered narrative that you got from more recent titles, you know, going back to Origins, uh, you know, Odyssey, and then finally uh, with Valhalla. So this is something I didn't think we'd ever see again. I just assumed that all future Assassin's Creed titles were going to be in the mold of Origins, Odyssey, and Valhalla. They were going to be these very complicated, sprawling, 50, 60-hour uh, open-world RPGs. Uh, but here we are with Mirage, and it looks like they're kind of refocusing on, you know, the uh, kind of the starting point for Assassin's Creed as a series. You know, Assassin's Creed 1, uh, and then going through the Ezio trilogy, etc., uh, kind of getting back to that model of gameplay, which... Um, I think it's pretty exciting. Um, you know, I, I don't want to speak for everybody. Obviously, um, I haven't really talked to John in detail about this, but 
I miss that model. Uh, I miss playing a game that was kind of over and done with in 20, 20 hours or so, 16 hours. I'm not really, not really feeling these uh, more open-ended RPGs. Not, it's not to say they're bad. It's just it's not really what I'm looking for anymore as a player. So I've, I think this is great. This is interesting news. I'm more interested in Assassin's Creed because of this news. Uh, and then in addition to Mirage, this showcase uh, announced Assassin's Creed Codename Jade which is a uh, mobile-based game that is going to be set in ancient China. Uh, in addition to Jade, there's also Assassin's Creed Codename Red, uh, which is going to be an RPG-focused game set in feudal Japan. So this could be a game that's a bit more like uh, more recent titles like Valhalla Odyssey Origin. Uh, and then there was also another title, uh, Assassin's Creed Codename, uh, called Hexig. Uh, and this is a game that kind of, they didn't go into a huge amount of detail. It's kind of got an undetermined style and genre. Uh, but the trailer makes it look like it's going to be maybe a horror game. And this is a game that is also being uh, led in development uh, by Clint Hawking. Uh, Clint Hawking, uh, most recently, having worked on um, uh, Watch Dogs uh, 3 uh, for Ubisoft, uh, is kind of a, a very famous developer, somebody with a very particular and interesting perspective on uh, player engagement uh, and uh, use of NPCs in games. And so I'm, I'm really curious. You know, Hawking is a name that... You know, uh, a lot of people associate with with good games, and so uh, you know, to see him get a chance to work on an Assassin's Creed title, uh, I think it's pretty interesting. So, again, three code names: uh, we've got Jade uh, set in China, Red set in feudal Japan, finally in feudal Japan, and then lastly, uh, Hexi, uh, which uh, don't really know the setting, but I assume. Uh, it's some sort of horror game uh, or horror action survival game. Um, and so I don't imagine with these announced titles that <laughs> we are actually going to end up calling them uh, Codename Jade and Codename Red. I think these are just kind of early release names uh, or, you know, announcement names. Um, but, you know, I think in all of these we have got kind of Ubisoft to trying multiple approaches. You know, on the one hand, we've got them uh, releasing a story-focused mobile game uh, in Jade. We've got them releasing another uh, RPG game uh, with Codename Red set in feudal Japan, which is kind of a long-standing wish of the Assassin's Creed community. And then with Hexi, we've got them kind of extending themselves, I feel like, you know, trying something a bit different. And you know, it almost feels like they're kind of throwing anything at the wall just to see what will stick, which is exciting on the one hand, but it also makes you wonder, are they feeling a little desperate with the direction of Assassin's Creed? I, you know, I, I don't know anything about the inner workings of Ubisoft, but <clears throat> it just seems a little odd that they would be trying to go in so many different directions uh, all at once. And, uh, you know, I assume they've got uh, the teams in line to complete all of this work, but <clears throat> I don't know. And, you know, of course, in the midst of all of this, in the midst of all of this uh, promotional work by Ubisoft in uh, Ubisoft Forward uh, and with the Assassin's Creed Showcase, <clears throat> it's really important to remember also that 
uh, Ubisoft is still under cloud of uh, related to uh, harassment uh, at uh, Ubisoft over the past decade. Uh, and of course, uh, that story hasn't gone away. You see it mentioned, of course, in uh, most of the articles related to Ubisoft Forward. Uh, and Ubisoft themselves have made direct references to it uh, in the press in uh, in and around this event. So, uh, you know, it's it's strange, I think. Um, you know, I think Mirage announcing the next big game, that's something you would expect. Uh, but these three codename games all at once, it's, it's just a lot. Um, now, in terms of education, in terms of, you know, kind of using Assassin's Creed in the classroom, you know, potential utility there, I think I'm most interested in Codename Jade. Uh, the mobile game, because that says to me that there's an opportunity uh, for students to engage with the Assassin's Creed series. It doesn't necessarily involve having the latest console or having a top grade PC like you would with AC Mirage uh, or with uh, potentially Codename Red uh, or Hexi. Uh, so I think in terms of kind of classroom, I'm really really interested in that, um, you know, using Jade uh, and seeing what that's like on mobile. And, you know, I think in general, historical games, historical game studies, they've shown a preference for looking at considering uh, AAA titles that appear on Steam, that appear on consoles. And that's certainly been the case with the History Respawn. But I think one of the big areas of interest for me going forward is mobile gaming, um, you know, particularly seeing how younger students uh, approach technology, how, you know, some of them uh, don't have a console, don't have a, a, you know, desktop PC, but they do have uh, the latest phones, the latest tablets, and that's how they interact with games, including historical games. So I think that's a smart bet uh, by... Uh, Ubisoft, you know, setting it in ancient China too, I think opens up, uh, obviously, um, the Chinese market, which is always something that's very interesting to developers. Um, and so, yeah, I think, you know, coming out of this event, um, I'm curious to see Ubisoft, how they move forward. Uh, you know, are they able to move forward, uh, with these issues of, uh, uh, allegations of assault, etc., uh, work, workplace harassment. Uh, but then, in addition to that, um, I think I'm I'm interested too to see Mirage, uh, and then also to see Jade, codename Jade, uh, which again I, I assume we're not going to have that title forever. Who knows? Maybe I'm wrong, but it just seems kind of clunky uh, in terms of game titles. Okay, uh, well, I think that does it for recent game news. Uh, and so I'm going to transition over uh, to an interview that I recorded earlier this week with Esther Wright. Uh, just as a reminder, Esther Wright is lecturer in digital history at Cardiff University. And Dr. Wright's research considers the representation of 20th century American history by Rockstar Games. And in particular, she studies the promotional strategies employed to sell historical authenticity of Rockstar titles. Uh, and in particular, uh, she looks at Red Dead Redemption, Red Dead series, and then also L.A. Noir. And in addition to this research, uh, Esther is also a co-convener of the Historical Games Network, 
which has been profiled in an episode of the History Respawn podcast. Um, and so Esther, as you know, hopefully, as you, if you've been a longtime listener, has been on many episodes of History Respawn, has been a guest in particular on our episode for Red Dead Redemption 2. And uh, during all of that time, uh, we've been eagerly anticipating uh, the publication of Esther's book. And it is it is here. It's finally here. And the book is entitled Rockstar Games and American History, Promotional Materials and the Construction of Authenticity. And this is uh, published by DeGroyder Press. So thanks for listening. And here's my interview with Esther Wright. Okay, Esther, welcome back to History Respond. Thanks for inviting me back. It's great to be here. Of course. I'm very excited about your book. I'm very excited to actually read it. Uh, and so I thought, you know, I don't know how well the audience is aware of your previous work, but you've been looking at Rockstar for quite a long time uh, through mm-hmm. your postgraduate work and then now uh, with your monograph. And I'm wondering just as kind of a, just to understand your process, why study Rockstar to begin with? Yeah, I mean, if there's a particular company, I suppose that always attracts a certain amount of attention, whether that's from kind of critics or fans or, you know, academics, it's it's, it's going to be a company like Rockstar. Um, and at the time when I started sort of deciding what my, yeah, my PhD project was essentially going to look like in sort of 2015, 2014, 2015, um, beyond some sort of articles or book chapters or the fact that Grand Theft Auto is, you know, a really common touchstone for sort of game studies and, and kind of academic work on games they hadn't really been sort of like a book-length study of the company at that point um or yeah anything that looked beyond sort of really specific aspects of, of their games so um it seemed like um a really kind of good um a nice case study for my phd anyway but also again not only a company that gets lots of attention for just their games but a company that's obviously so committed to representing different aspects of, of America as literally part of their brand sort of image and, and what it is that they do. It's sort of the American kind of mostly urban and sometimes obviously not urban experience. Um the the kind of the yeah the rock star vision, the rock star kind of game being very much bound up with um Americana in lots of different ways. So yeah, it, it kind of fitted what I was doing at that point and being really interested in the way that American history was representing different kinds of media and then focusing on games for the PhD. Um, and I think beyond that, even just personally, they're a kind of developer brand that I just find really interesting for what they're doing um, and felt that I kind of obviously <laughs> had a lot to say about them and wanted to spend that you know long amount of time <laughs> thinking about what it was they were doing. Yeah, it's such an important brand for the last 20 years. I mean, you think mm. about the release of Grand Theft Auto 3 in particular, and uh, I mm-hmm. just turned 40. And so I was right in the kind of wheelhouse for that game. And, you know, I, I was aware of Rockstar when uh, they were developing the kind of top-down GTA games, uh, GTA 1 and then um, GTA 2, which I think is also historical, set in London in the late 60s. Um, and those games kind of had a cult following, but you know, even back then, Rockstar 
was associated with the type of games they were selling, but then also the brand, right? The kind of, mm. this is a rock star title. And so I think it's really useful, you know, in your book um, that you're looking at the kind of brand, but then also the propaganda of that brand, the promotional material uh, for mm. that brand. So I'm wondering, uh, could you describe for our listeners, you know, what kind of sources are you using for this book and why are you focusing on promotional material? Yeah, I mean, completely, as, as you say, there's so much about Rockstar's history as a developer and the way what, what they themselves have been trying to do has been trying to curate this kind of image of themselves as, as Rockstar and what that brand sort of in, encapsulates. And one of the things that I did sort of when I really kind of started to get a sense of understanding what this this project was, was like I did I had I have a whole a whole chapter that kind of made it a little bit into only the intro in the book on the kind of rockstar brand um because I kind of want to do at some point something um bigger with it when I actually get over <laughs> having written one book maybe do something else <laughs> um but yeah you know it's and it's it's really bound up in certain kind of values and you know the idea of propaganda is just is hilarious because when when you get if you sign up to rockstar's mailing list as I kind of like I mentioned in the book it, it comes through um from the center of rockstar propaganda right and it's all this sort of um yeah, kind of outsider, anti-authority, sort of like rebellious kind of stuff that they've been trying to curate for a very long time, not only through their games, but, you know, um, who, who they are as a company, I suppose. So the kinds of sources that I ended up looking at was sort of anything that Rockstar as developer had kind of created and put out there themselves or were involved in, in putting out. Um, so in terms of promotional materials, paratext is anything from... Um, looking at the actual development of the official Rockstar website um, and all the different kind of parts of that website where they're communicating different things about their games or about the company, um, different kinds of, you know, um, audiovisual stuff like trailers and promotional artwork um, to sort of develop interviews and things that were sort of done then, I guess, in collaboration with, um, you know, other, you know, big games and media outlets, um, pub you know, publication outlets and stuff. So, and I guess why, um, in the most fundamental way, I suppose, or how I see it is the fact that this is all part of the experience of what the games, what, what their games are trying to do. And media scholars and some game scholars have been kind of arguing quite persistently and persuasively for a long time that everything around the game is still part of the potential experience of the game. Um, so it's a way, you know, any kind of digital or non-digital kind of real world stuff that you might see that is kind of marketing or trying to sell you something is a way that you could potentially encounter this game before you then sit down and play it and the way that you might make some kind of meaning out of it whether that's kind of positively or, or, or less positively so doing this project and kind of going through and looking for these materials and once I worked out that was really the focal point of what I was doing really did make me feel kind of very strongly that putting promotional materials at the center of our analysis is really important for kind of augmenting and sort of developing our understanding of what developers are trying to do um, when they kind of do history through games. But there was another sort of thing that I guess kind of came out. Um, and when I when I did start this, you know, I like I, I didn't necessarily think that promotional materials were going to be the center point. I thought they were going to be part of it, but I didn't think they were the kind of the key of what I was doing. And it was it was very kind of like, you know, I'm just analyzing these games and seeing what they're doing with American history. And I think as historians and kind of academics who study historical games, there's sometimes 
or kind of has been a tendency, I suppose, to just look at it through the prism of our own academic expertise on these games. What does the game's narrative or gameplay sort of do? Or what does it look like in relation to what we already kind of know about the past? And treating them as sort of case studies in relation to our own sort of yeah expertise and historical knowledge. Um, so as historians, we're always always kind of going to see things in certain ways that you know your average player, unless they're super into kind of the history and historical and all of that, just isn't going to see. So um, for me, also, I suppose, because there was no way of then asking anyone at Rockstar, you know, hey, you know, why did you make this kind of decision? Promotional materials and all different kinds of these sort of digital paratexts were useful ways of kind of getting at what a company wants you to think about their game, what how they want this game to be viewed, the kind of expectations that they kind of they want players to have, the sort of interpretations they're trying to encourage people to to make. And obviously, players might completely reject them. They might not view all of these sorts of things that I'm talking about. They might not bother watching the trailers, even though we know that people really, really love and really, really wait for Rockstar trailers and any piece of information that they, the company will give to their fans about anything that's you know, up and coming. Um, but yeah, it's it's just, it's interesting to see the kind of insights and that they were trying to offer. So what kind of expectations of a Western game or a, noir game did they think that people already have and how can they sort of lean into that and make it seem like their games are then going to be worth playing to those people or how can they sort of shape people's expectations or people who've had a different experience or a different perspective on this um to say well this is what we think so this is kind of what we not think that you should think too but here's our way of looking at it so forget about all the complexity of these things and here's what you should what you should want and what you should mm -hmm. think about when you're playing this. Yeah, and I had written down in my notes and I've got them here, I, I described this, you know, because Rockstar as a brand is very famous for its kind of satirical look at American society, but they're also really famous mm. for being very standoffish in terms of the amount of information that they give. They don't do many interviews. Yeah. And so I kind of looked at this as kind of a way to uh, reverse engineer authorial intent with Mm. Uh, these paratexts were using the promotional material to kind of get it. What is it? The Hausers and Dan Hauser in particular uh, with, you know, th something like uh, red dead. What are they trying mm -hmm. to say about America? What are they presenting? And you make a very persuasive argument in the book about, you know, how these promotional materials, uh, they are really important for kind of setting up guardrails for how the player will understand the history that is being presented, mm -hmm. right? They are, through things like Rockstar Recommends, uh, through the Newswire, through the, the literal Rockstar propaganda, what they call propaganda, um, <laughs> they are setting up for the player the game world, but then they are also kind of, you know, making an argument as to why the game is compelling based on the historical material. I think that's really, really important is that it's not just about, oh, this is a really cool game, right? It's not just about the open world. It's about, this is a historical game. And this is cool because it's got history in it. I think that's is yeah. really well presented by this book. Yeah, and I and I think it's the fact that what was so sort of interesting to me in looking at these kind of sources is the extent to which they felt they needed to do that because you know you wouldn't have thought necessarily. I mean, other than the fact that at that point, as Rockstar products. Red Dead Redemption and L.A. Noire in kind of, you know, 2009 to 2011, they were unproven Rockstar products, right? They, they hadn't sold on the scale that any Grand Theft Auto game had sold, that nobody knew what to expect of them. You know, it, other than that, 
it's interesting to me the extent that they felt they needed to kind of do that. They they could have done, you know, a, a completely different sort of a, approach to sort of marketing. And yeah, it's, it's a really interesting marketing strategy that to have these games running in sort of parallel in terms of when they were released, but the way they would be marketed, to have them marketed exactly the same way. I mean, you know, beyond if we're thinking about obviously the, the broader connections between the Western and the noir as sort of like forms of genre, if we want to call them that, or kind of cultural expression, like... It's just really interesting that at this point in time, they, you know, the company, were really, really trying to sell it. But they weren't just trying to say, yeah, as you say, these are amazing games. They're going to be awesome. They're going to be rock star games. We've already proved ourselves with Grand Theft Auto. Like they were saying that, but they were also saying, look how historically valuable these yeah. are. Look at all the true things we're going to be telling you. And like you get to experience what it was like. Why did they feel the need to do that? It's not like these games weren't going to find some kind of audience. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it was really, really fascinating. Yeah, so some of these uh, sources you're dealing with uh, from Rockstar Newswire, from Rockstar Recommends, these are kind of segments that used to be on their website, used to be a part of promotional emails. And I was blown away with kind of the amount of surface-level historical research that they do present, but so much of it is written through... Uh, kind of traditions of, uh, you know, historical media, including American cinema, right? They are mm. not necessarily coming up with these methods on their own, but they are kind of relying on how have these histories been presented by other media in the past and using that as the basis. So I'm wondering, could you talk a little bit more about what kind of material are in these uh, promotional uh, Rockstar Recommends Newswire? But then also, how are they drawing inspiration in this promotion from American cinema uh, in particular? Yeah. Um, I mean, on the, the way I talk about it in, in the book, I talk about these two kind of parallel sort of discourses where on, and they're, they're kind of parallel, but they also really, really overlap in what they're doing. There's the kind of very sort of, um, I say traditional, but it's not traditional, the kind of historical authenticity stuff where they're saying things like you know look these are all the things going on in the background of these stories and um one of the the really sort of memorable quotes um for me that always sort of sticks in my brain is is one of the really very first ones for for red dead redemption where they're talking about um so one of the blog series was called kind of bad guys gone good and vice versa where they were talking about real people who um were kind of uh, you know, wavered in their sort of the way they behaved on different sides of the law, kind of like John John Marston mm -hmm. does. So the way that they kind of open this blog post is, you know, um, unlike the pure fantasy of most video games, the, the kind of the conditions that amount to John Marston's backstory are very real. Um, <laughs> so you've got these kind of, you know, and it's uh, unlike the pure fantasy of most video games, is it this... <laughs> these games are not also kind of pure fantasy right but they're not you know they do have these important touchstones so there's things like that there's you know here's all these real people here's and for reddit it's just fascinating the way that they kind of offer these insights into here are the actual kind of historical processes that are going on like the developments of kind of mass communication and you know the development of technology and things it's not as if they were kind of getting things wrong there's like huge things that they're obviously getting very right about this game but yeah it's it's the way that yeah, as you say, the kind of the surface level way of, of sort of engagement, what they're doing, it's kind of like, here's a, you know, a bunch of different, like, you can go read some Wikipedia articles, there's even some academic sort of like JSTOR stuff hidden in these kind of blog posts, you can go away and read, but it's all really taking the, the complexities of kind of obviously historic, historical research done by historians and t turning into this lovely little narrative of here's what the American West was like, 
Um, and here's what you're going to see in, in Red Dead Redemption. It's like a complete heir apparent to all of these things. And for, for Ellie Noir, it was kind of, you know, very similar. Here's the real crimes that happened in 1947 that we did the research about in Los Angeles um, that we then made kind of fictionalized versions of, of cases for. So you're going to be interfacing with kind of like real, real things and real things that happened and, you know, real places. So there's this, yeah, th but uh, yeah, and I guess it kind of boils down to here's this world that you're going to see. And yeah, here's all the kind of the, the background history stuff. And this is all really authentic. So therefore your experience of this is, is going to be authentic, even though as you say, it's a completely kind of superficial, superficial rather very kind of condensed, narrowed version of, of what it is. But so much of those expectations, those historical narratives are completely defined by what you would expect if you have like consumed all of the popular culture that surrounds these things. And the fact that they are doing this kind of discourse of historical authenticity alongside and overlapping with this sort of discourse of cinematic authenticity, as I talk about, is the fact that, you know, these things play into each other really, really well, um, because there is just so much overlap in the way that they're trying to draw from and, and take inspiration from kind of prestige cinema um, and noir films and, and Western films and the way that they're talking about um, historical authenticity, not just because obviously these genres you know, the, the Western and the noir are entirely steeped in a certain kind of historical period um, that people associate with them. So, you know, whether you're talking the, the 1930s and 40s um, with, with noir and the kind of wartime or you know, post-war kind of angst of it all, it's very much, you know, hard-boiled um, up within that genre or with the Western and the frontier and it's kind of closing and, you know, the place where Americans were supposedly made Americans if we're going to go with the kind of Frederick Jackson turn of it all you know the white Americans who made white Americans or whatever. but it was sort of very clever I suppose of them to acquire these franchises um from other companies like you know Red Dead Revolver from Capcom and obviously Team Bondi did co-develop um Ali Noir with Rockstar because they do make so much sense as part of Rockstar's portfolio as a company that's clearly very invested in yeah doing stuff about a, a real version of America but completely doing it through the prism of, you know, what are the, you know, mediated histories have done. This is kind of, this is not trying to be the histories that you find in sort of books and articles, but it's the ones that you've already seen on screen, the yeah. ones you already know. Um, so to historians, obviously, this is very clearly a kind of past that's steeped in, in the myth that's come from yeah. sort of popular culture. Um, and yeah, like I said, even there's lots of things that the games are getting right in terms of the you know broad themes or the visual specificity of different things or the stuff that actually did happen at certain points. They're never solely intended as the kind of um, approved history that historians would sort of like, you know, check the box. Like, yeah, they've done all this kind of right. Um, but they were never meant to be because so much of what they're doing is clearly, you know, the, the history maybe probably comes second after the fact that it's the the genres that really they're taking stuff from. Yeah. Um, but also very, like their very specific idea of what these genres are, not the big, again, the big complexity yes. of these genres and the different kinds of people within them. It's, yeah. it's a kind of very, very narrowed image of that too. So it's like these two narrowed images of the history and the genres yes. put together, I guess. Yes. Yeah, I think that's really well done in the book. Uh, I think you're writing on L.A. Noir in particular, going through the meaning of noir in general, and then also presenting mm. how film scholars have interpreted it, how historians have interpreted it, and then now how a rock star has done it. 
I mean, that's, I think that's some of the best writing in the book. And it's definitely stuff that I'm hoping to crib from, from like my future work is like, oh, okay, well, you know, who's written best stuff on Ellie Noir and Rockstar? It's, uh, this is Esther's book, right? I'll just go back and steal <laughs> copious amounts of material from that with citations, of course. Um, but it's interesting to me, I think, you know, uh, being a historian, being a historian uh, with a PhD in British history, it's fascinating to me of the uh, British origins of Rockstar and the Housers mm-hmm. in particular, and the ways in which, you know, American film uh, is so powerful to a British conception of what is America. And, you know, mm-hmm. I think you can say this with the Housers, but you can also see this with, you know, British films that come out, uh, you know, the cinema of uh, Christopher Nolan, um, you know, the cinema of Sam Mendes, uh, cinema of uh, Edgar Wright. I'm sure no relation to Esther mm-hmm. Wright, but Edgar Wright in particular, <laughs> a very powerful uh, influence. And, you know, all of these British uh, directors and what their ideas about American society are through their film. And I think the Housers kind of fit into that. And the Housers see themselves as part of that tradition mm-hmm. of you know, kind of British authors, British uh, uh, directors casting their gaze to America. And, you know, I think they play that up in the interviews that they've done, the limited mm. interviews that they've done. But you can also see that clear influence in uh, these uh, pieces of uh, paratext that you look at. You look at, um, you know, Rockstar Recommends in particular, all these films that they list out that you could look at. Um they obviously care a lot about this. And, you know, even though we don't have kind of archival sources uh, or, mm-hmm. you know, kind of deep developer diaries for Rockstar, at least not yet, mm-hmm. uh, I feel like you've done a really compelling job of kind of reverse engineering that thought process through looking at the promotional material. Yeah. And it, it's it's really, it's fascinating, actually, that you you mentioned like you know, Christopher Nolan and, and Edgar Wright, because I, I had, um, I can't remember if it made it into the book, but definitely in the thesis, there was a footnote specifically that sort of talked about um, or mentioned Christopher Nolan and Edgar Wright, because what I find completely bizarre, and I don't know whether it was because I was just so, you know, down the rabbit hole of PhD at that point, and that you start seeing everything is connected to everything, right? But the when I think it was Dunkirk came out and also Baby Driver came mm-hmm. out, they must have been within within the sort of the scheme of me doing the PhD. There were all these all these there were articles that were published. It was like, here's the cinematic influences of these like auteur directors. And that is exactly, you know, it was all these kind of, you know, big war films, or I, I can't remember what the ones were for, for Baby Driver, but it was exactly the same tone as like Rockstar recommends. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you're you're gonna play this game, you're gonna watch this film. Here's your kind of like cinematic antecedents. It's it's very much this playing in into this kind of like auteur branding that they yes, are clearly courting yes. in in some sense you know here's the the vision and here's where they've drawn from their kind of like proper cinematic and cultural ancestors to make a game that is you know or a film that is therefore all the more authentic because they are well versed in the kind of history and what it is that they're trying to do um but yeah i mean i think as well with the 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 sort of the broader point about rockstar's british identity and how they've kind of never you know that's that's always been sort of so intrinsic to the branding despite the fact that and you know obviously because rockstar north still is still in edinburgh and you know that the the british origin of the houses and all of that 
but it is now a very kind of multinational company mm -hmm. and so much of it being done out of New York or San Diego and, and you know, other places in the US. But the fact that that has remained so core to their identity is, is clearly one of the reasons why their games have for so long been so regarded as kind of satire and critique that they were offering this kind of outsider yep. quote unquote perspective yep. on America and that they could be so critical. But what I, I kind of wanted to do or sort of do a little bit in, in the book and well, hopefully successfully, I don't quite know, but it's to, to sort of undercut that a little bit and say, well, actually clearly they grew up just obsessed with American culture. How critical can you be of something that you are so clearly in love with? Yeah. And so clearly, yeah, okay, I'm not saying these games are not critical and not satirical, but how meaningful, how how kind of biting can that satire be when you actually love it and you are still propping up so much of it and you are clearly drawing so much of what you know about these yeah. periods mm -hmm. and these things from these these films and from these kind of bits of popular culture. So I've always found that weird tension point with Roxanne, and their kind of claims of being these amazing kind of like cultural critics and satirists when it's just... They're just repackaging stuff that they loved when they grew up, clearly, yeah. right? So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it reminds me so much. I did my doctoral work on looking at uh, the history of international policing. And so it was a focus on the British. Uh, and their obsession was always with crime in America. They were always obsessed with... I was looking in the interwar period, so it was a lot of talk of Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett and mm. all of these books. And even mm. then, even among you know professionals, you know police officers, administrators in Britain, they think that you know American crime is really what they see in these these books, right? Uh, and some yeah. sometimes later on uh, in these TV shows and these movies. And I feel like uh, the Housers and maybe some of these directors really do fall into that same sort of category, right? They know better. Like if you sat them down and talked to them, they would know better. But also yeah. the artwork that they produce seems to yeah. say, no, actually they don't. or They don't care. <laughs> they don't care about the consequences. Yeah. I don't know. I, you know, Maybe that's something we can look forward to if they ever publish developer diaries or something like that. We can get to the real heart of it. But I feel like you make a, a good case here of, like you said, mm. undercutting that a, a bit. So, yeah. Um, Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, you know, with the work that you're doing here, you know, looking at these promotional materials, uh, you had some difficulties that you talk about uh, at great length, in particular in the conclusion, about collecting sources for this book. And in particular, you know, with these kind of promotional materials that are not meant to uh, stay around. They're right to, meant to be kind of ephemeral, trying to boost uh, pre-orders mm. right before the release of a game. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, could you describe for our listeners, what was it like to collect sources, particularly when the things that you're looking at are designed to be ephemeral, they're designed to, you know, be there and then leave. And then also, what is it meant for you to have to go back into, you know, internet archive and look at previous versions of the Rockstar website, which I'm sure was Super, super, super annoying. Just talk a little bit about source collection. <laughs> yeah, um, it was, yeah, it was a weird process because like I said, to begin, you know, completely, I guess, full disclosure, I didn't sort of realize what I was doing when I started doing it. Um, partly because I, you know, I, I'm a very traditionally, you know, in this, I have a BA and an MA in, in history, right? I'm a very sort of traditionally in that sense trained historian, but I was never trained in the kind of digital history that this ended up being, um, or at least not, you know, not formally trained. So it was kind of nightmarish at times in trying to find, once I knew, figured out what it was I was actually doing, it kind of, 
it's it's easy to find things accidentally, but then more difficult to find or to work out, you know, okay, what is what is the sort of the summer stuff I could find? I don't even know what the kind of the, the because I I will you know I I had played before my PhD, I played Red Dead, I'd played Ellie Noir, I hadn't, you know, I'd sort of encountered GTA games and, and stuff like that. But I, I wasn't like a, a super fan, which obviously was helpful, but it meant I wasn't really aware of the kind of things that Rockstar did, even as a, on a kind of personal level, on a professional level. So a lot of it, yeah, became kind of nightmarish with with the Rockstar website. So that in itself was was difficult because I was seeing things when I started you know, unpacking and kind of looking at different things on the website. I was obviously seeing things by the time I started the PhD, like five or six years after they'd, they'd actually been published. So that was, <laughs> that was one thing, right? So lots of, um, luckily, um, you know, a lot of the newswire stuff that I talk about is, is still there. You can still go to the links, um, or, you know, but, but what's there doesn't look like it would have looked like in 2009 to 2011. And that's part of the problem. Like, um, the the you know they use a lot of trailers and embedded a lot of links and stuff um some of which have now completely rotted or just yeah. disappeared okay. there are a lot of instances of kind of um where they were clearly encouraging fan or kind of player in, interaction so a lot of polls that are now completely dead obviously i would never you know could work out what they were um there were um at one point when i started um underneath all of these posts they they encourage people to kind of like sound off in the comments and there were comments and people talking about like their favorite westerns and people that oh you know noir films and people interacting with these posts um and and i was kind of looking at these things and thinking oh cool like for future that's that's something really useful and then at one point it just got the website got completely overhauled and it was uh. at some point where the yeah the, the the social club sort of must have got integrated into a, to a different way and they all just vanish and i was like why didn't I save anything? Like, so yeah, there was a lot of way back, and that was—I think—that was really the point where I started realizing, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of unprepared for this in some senses of what I'll really where I started realizing that that ephemeral kind of nature, what you were talking about, is is kind of is so important and and sort of to, to be a bit more kind of like, right, what am I actually doing? I need to be a bit more sort of, you know. Um, just just thinking about it and, and thinking about what needs to be kind of saved, what can be saved, because, yeah, the Wayback Machine is great for some things, but is not it's not a kind of complete way. You can get, you know, some interesting things of how the Rockstar website looked in, you know, different points over the last 20 years, but you're not going to get a yeah. full kind of like complete. You can access some of those comments and things, but it doesn't the Wayback Machine doesn't cache everything. Yeah. Um, so. I, yeah, I, I learned a lot about sort of doing digital history before I actually realized what I was doing, <laughs> mainly by making kind of mistakes um, and things that I do differently now or I think about differently now and would, would obviously do differently um, again. But um, when it comes to, so that, you know, the Rockstar website was one kind of beast in itself um, that I sort of, yeah, was very lucky that at least the Newswire stuff, even if it looks differently, a lot of the text, a lot of the content so it was, was still there to talk about. Um, you can still see what the official websites for Rock, um, for Red Dead and Eleanor look like, even if they're sort of slightly differently configured and things moved around a bit. But it was actually the stuff where I was trying to find things outside of the Rockstar website that was sort of difficult, like finding as you say, the very rare instances where they do developer interviews and yeah. actually talk about, um, you know, people like Dan Hauser or sort of the the creative execs give interviews and talk about things. I was kind of lucky in that around, so I was looking at the news war and what was happening around the time the games are coming out because they were reposting stuff. They were oh, kind of nice. saying, look, at check, yeah. check out this interview that we did with, I don't know, GameSpot or IGN. Like here's Dan Hauser's like marathon interview that he did with, you know, IGN. So those were kind of there, but 
it was also a little bit of actually just kind of really creative googling um of trying to find stuff and even even things that I found um you know developing tools that I found by the time I kind of got you know a certain way through the through the PhD and we're kind of going back to them the the website's like gone yeah the, you know games press just just buy like doesn't exist anymore can i find this on internet archive maybe yeah. well <laughs> like, and one of the things you know, you mentioned google there one of the interesting sources that you had talked about were youtube video annotations which yeah, you know yeah. in many cases were completely gone by the time that you'd gotten to the source and um but in some cases you had listed something out so in chapter four I had written down this footnote, uh, uh, footnote number 132, and you had mentioned uh, at the one uh, minute, five second mark of this video, it says uh, for an annotation, quote, uh, find the 20 hidden police badges in GameStop's bad pursuit challenge to unlock <laughs> Phelps's button man suit and additional XP. And I love this footnote because this is like, oh, okay, yeah. So it is like kind of building part of the... Uh, uh, the promotional material for the player, mm. but it's one of these kind of, it, it encapsulates kind of the ephemeral nature of this. Like this is a pre-order bonus that is only available from one seller uh, in North America, at least. Uh, yeah. And I just think that, you know, but this is like for us, you know, and speaking generally about historical game studies, this is a great source, but it's also like one of these weird things like, if you were to tell me 10 years ago that I would be reading a book in which somebody would be making reference to a YouTube annotation about GameStop, I would just be like, you're crazy. <laughs> but these are yeah. this is the kind of stuff that we we have to do, I think, mm. you know, going forward. It's it's gonna be more common. Yeah, and that 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 video is just annoys me to no end that I <laughs> because yeah, I it was it was at some point, I can't remember the day, I think it's just probably one of the footnotes, the point where YouTube stopped supporting annotation. Yes. Because yeah, this was was just a completely wild and fascinating source where yeah, you've got annotations like that. Um, and then you've got stuff like, you know, this is this is a real person, you know, who was a around in 1947 L.A. And this is John Noble, who's famous from Lord of the Rings, playing <laughs> like this shady developer, just yeah. completely all of the different levels of it's such a good illustration of this kind of overlap between the historical authenticity and the wider kind of cultural authenticity that they were going for, as well as talking about the gameplay and like, yes. here's what you can do in the game. So it was all these different levels of stuff they were trying to kind of yes. like mash together to make people think about and yeah, that I just, there was at some point that obviously then I, I went back to, I think he was in the process of kind of revising it, you know, the thesis into the book. And I was like, oh my God, they don't work anymore. And part of me having to explain them in footnotes, what yes. they actually said and give the timestamps was because I, I I did have some screen caps, yeah. but then for, for, for various copyright reasons and, you know, I couldn't actually include um, just just not getting a response from Rockstar about including things in, in images in my book. So obviously we're not going to do that for fair use or not fair use reasons or whatever. But um, so that's another thing that's really really challenging is when you can't use kind of the the screenshots and stuff that I did have saved. How do you explain things as well? Because in in that same chapter, there's another uh, another issue that I had about explaining the way that. So much of like the things that you do as Phelps, the way he investigates objects and yes, picks up yes. things and the, the way that the camera actually shows you things is just so shockingly similar to the way that you see things in films like LA Confidential or in Chinatown. Um, yeah. Chinatown. Yeah. It's the exactly finger the thing I, in Chinatown. I thought that was really, thing, yeah, yeah, that was really yeah. good. I was like, man, <laughs> this blows my mind. I was like, whoa. <laughs> But like how, you know, how do you explain a video game, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, at least with, with the, 
with the film, I, could, I was like, okay, I can't use the image, right? Let's go to the film. Let's find the timestamp here. If you go to this film and watch this, this, yeah. you know, Jack Nicholson running his finger down a ledger, and then you go yeah. to this, yeah, yeah. like that you go to go to this game and this mission, and then you look at how do I? There's no timestamp. It's just I promise it's in this mission. Go and do it, and then you can see this thing that Phelps is doing, and it's exactly the same. Um, yeah, but it's this is this is yeah the the, the ephemerality, the fact that they just they just disappear, yeah. and and how are you supposed to? I haven't quite, you know, if anyone knows a way of getting these things back, like, great, please tell me because I haven't figured out a way of doing it. They just stopped supporting stuff and now it's gone. Yeah, I know. And, you know, as somebody who's been on YouTube for uh, 10 years now, History Mm. Respond, you know, I can tell you that there's all sorts of things. There's all sorts of comments. There's all sorts of uh, audience engagement, things in particular that have completely changed and it's just lost, you know, and even somebody like me who's been running one of those YouTube channels, I don't have access mm. to any of that stuff anymore yeah. either. And, yeah. you know, once a, once a feature is gone, it's gone. And it is really important, you know, if you're interested in kind of like maintaining this uh, legacy of these videos, of these annotations, it's really important to download it while you still have access mm-hmm. to it. And I do that, you know, once a year, I will go through and I will make sure for history respawn, I'll go and make sure it's like, okay, do I have this video downloaded? Is this the version? Mm. Just in case somebody wants it, or if it goes away someday, and there needs to be some sort of record. And, you know, I can't imagine how many game companies are thinking like that. I can't remember, you know, I can't think of any marketing teams that would think like that. I don't know. And so, you know, I think when we talk about video games, and listeners will be aware of this too, that there's a lot of talk about you know, kind of lost video games and needing mm. to maintain video game hardware, needing to maintain uh, data ROM, uh, you know, ROMs of old games, uh, you know, software and how some of that's being lost. And we have things like the, you know, Video Game History Foundation trying to do some of that work, yeah. the Strong Museum trying to do it, the National Video Game Museum, the UK trying to do that. But I also think that there is a lot of material. Uh, that you talk about the promotional material around a game that is being lost at even maybe even in a faster rate than yeah. the games themselves. Yeah, and it, and it's I think as you say I, I just don't know if developers they 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 don't they see the value or I mean I I don't want to speak for game developers because I don't know but I think it's easier maybe if I speak in a more general way to see the value in preserving games and yeah. preserving hardware than it is and also perhaps you know I know that's complicated it's obviously complicated to to preserve these things but it's even more complicated how do you even begin to think about how we preserve all of these this this stuff that's mm-hmm. just kind of randomly in different places you know how do you even make decisions about what you do say because you know this is the the fact that I mean I, I've been of increasingly reading you know more stuff about kind of um doing digital history and the kind of the technology and history you know by dint of you know realizing what i was actually doing with this stuff but you know in parts of my my job as well and thinking well okay how do we we need to be teaching future historians about this because it's already kind of too late to not be teaching future historians about this because so much of what they're going to be encountering already is born digital or, or you know digitized and is kind of we are just not prepared like as a profession for this like we're really not um so how do you begin to make decisions about what's important if if a developer and a historian we're not going to necessarily agree yeah, on what the important exactly. thing to save is like we how do we say you know oh we need you to save all these things so we can study them in the future when we don't even really know yeah. what you know it's it's just there are so many questions um and yeah which is why I'm I'm so glad that there are these kind of 
seems to be ever increasing conversations and initiatives and stuff that are, that are happening or people are becoming much more aware of the fact we need to preserve these things um it's just how how do we even make decisions and how do we then do that yeah. well i can say i having gone to the strong having gone to library of congress done research on games i'm very thankful to archivists because they're the ones who mm. are actually going out and trying to get these sources before historians yeah. even realize they need them so yeah we'll just rely on librarians <laughs> yeah. and archivists to to take care yeah, of this of course for us. yeah and we'll be yeah. bumbling His in the dark yeah yeah historians always being well behind the curve of realizing <laughs> what, we, what we actually need to be doing um definitely yeah um all right so kind of the last question here this book uh it does a really good job of analyzing red dead redemption one la noir you know kind of coming out of your postgraduate research you know these were the games that were out when you had started that process and when you were researching initially and kind of the main focus of this monograph too um but i'm wondering you know what about the publications from Rockstar since L.A. Noir, and in particular, what kind of influence did the publication of Red Dead Redemption 2 have on your analysis of this topic? When it was announced um, in, I think, yeah, 2016, I was about a year or so into the PhD, um, and I already had a pretty good idea of what I was going to focus on, and it was just focusing on on the first Red Dead and, and L.A. Noir. So it kind of, when it was announced, it kind of hung over me like a kind of cloud um, sort of wait, thinking, okay, well, is it going to, you know, the PhD is only ever sort of, you know, a certain amount of time, right? I was like, is it going to come out at a point where... I then feel like I'm kind of compelled to, you know, meaningfully incorporate it, or is it just going to be way, way too late? And then I'm going to feel terrible that I didn't incorporate it. And it was, I think it was sort of slated initially to come out in 2017 and it did eventually then come out sort of late um, 2018. So I, I finished and my PhD was pretty much um, kind of in the end stages by that point, it was kind of handed in in March, 2019, I think. So it was, it was far too late to really kind of, meaningfully incorporate it in that way but it, it did you know I, I went to the I went to the midnight launch of, of Red Dead 2 and then spent about two weeks solidly playing it and sort of ruining my life that way <laughs> as a kind of you know I need to like write about these things and obviously talking to you know talking to you his respond about it so I was I was thinking about it constantly from from that point and thinking about okay where does this fit and the the point where it did fit in the the PhD was was in the in the conclusion as a kind of you know here's where they are now as a way of reflecting on and reflecting on a lot of the stuff that I had actually talked about in in the thesis and so when it came um, to then revising you know turning the thesis into into a book I was you know I did sort of question like do I have to and I still sort of wonder I suppose to myself should it have been more sort of integrated into the actual kind of the, the the main body of the text into the chapters because it mainly only I only really talk about it in the the epilogue but you know at some length I suppose but I think if I, I had sort of threaded it through more it would have maybe unbalanced a bit of what the book was trying to do because it, the book it, you know is very much about capturing a, a sort of quite specific moment in time of when Rockstar released these two games within sort of a year of each other what they were doing in terms of the promotion it was it, it kind of has a, a logic in that sense. And the fact is that with Red Dead 2, they hugely stripped down the kind of promotion that they were doing. Um, for, sorry, for, yeah, for, for Red Dead Redemption 2 was, it was, there were a lot of things that were the same. They had the kind of the gameplay series videos, the trailers, obviously they had a very iconic artwork. It was all branded in a very similar way, but I was almost waiting when we got closer and closer to the game to, to Red Dead 2 coming out for the sort of resurgence of Rockstar Recommends, I was waiting for these kind of these blog posts to come back. But 
there there was nothing and it's it's odd because in 2017 um so you know i guess a year or so before red dead 2 came out when ellie noir was remastered for the next generation consoles and for the um, nintendo switch and they released it as a vr the, the vr case files they did revive rockstar recommends for a single blog post where they um they sort of they used um, uh, Lady in the Lake, a kind of, you know, older noir film to sort of talk about the experience that you would get um, through the kind of the words of, um, I think it's Philip Marlowe from the, you know, all that sort of stuff. So not even, or I guess kind of a year before, they they were still actually using Rockstar Recommend as a legitimate way of selling the experience of L.A. Noir. But then it was just, I, I spent a long time trying to work out, well, why did they not do that then when Red Dead 2 came out and I think they just didn't like who needs to sell another Red Dead Redemption game at this point when that single image was tweeted in 2016 they were kind of backpedaling you know people like you know the sort of take two saying please don't expect another GTA 5 like you know you, this is just you know people were going absolutely yeah that it, it was a lot mm-hmm. so they didn't need to kind of prove themselves and what I sort of use the epilogue to talk about a little bit is the fact that they didn't need to prove themselves anymore, that they could be trusted to create a Western game. They didn't need to show they're working out and they didn't need to show all the research they've done or that they watched all these films because it was always going to be a success. Now, that sort of didn't, even though obviously the, the, the critical reception to the game was, you know, completely off the charts, it was the most realistic game ever. It was so historically, you know, authentic, you know, they redefined the open world again. It was never going to get anything other than that sort of praise. But it didn't mean that what the substance of what Red Dead uh, Red Dead Two was actually doing in the way that Rockstar was sort of revising the the West and the West, and even if it was set so many you know a decade or so before the first Red Dead Redemption, beyond the surface level of you know having kind of more women characters, having more people of color, being a kind of more expansive vision of the West, it, it's still this kind of very Rockstar very Red Dead Redemption, very tied to a particular way of seeing the West and who's important and whose stories matter. Um, so yeah, it's, I think it, yeah, they, I could I could have done it. I still wonder about whether I should have done it, but I think it sort of works much better as something that is distinct because it was so distinct from what I was yeah. trying to talk about. They, they changed the way that they were selling this because they didn't really need to sell it anymore. And also, and I mean, another thing that kind of you know, again, ru- ruined my life was that I tried very hard to map all the promotion. And I did try and save like everything that yeah. I saw because I knew that I couldn't have done that with the first Red Dead. And it would just made me realize how absolutely impossible that is to do because I was like getting stuff because there was all the Instagram stuff, there was the Twitter stuff, there was the Facebook stuff, there was the website stuff. It's just, you know, we are only, it was a real kind of humbling moment of the fact that we are, any one person is only ever going to be able to see a very partial part of the possible experience that someone might have of this game and its promotion so even just for that and for giving me that kind of giving me that kind of insight of you know how we need to think about promotional materials it was sort of useful too yeah i think uh, you know i think what you did ended up doing with the book and kind of incorporating a little bit of analysis of red dead redemption 2 at the end was useful because i think like you said um, there is a, you almost didn't need to do a full on analysis of Red Dead Redemption 2, like, you know, multiple extra chapters, because there was so much consistency mm-hmm. in the view. And, you know, I think like you had argued uh, persuasively, they'd already done a lot of the work of kind of promoting their specific historical vision with the promotional material for 
Red Dead Redemption yeah. One. And you know, as a player, not as a scholar, as a player, I don't remember any of the promotional stuff for Red Dead Redemption One. I just didn't think about it mm-hmm. in the same way back then when I played it. Uh, but then being aware and consciously thinking about the promotion of Red Dead Redemption 2, I was struck in the book by how consistent that messaging was for, you know, the promotional material in Red Dead Redemption was as the way, the limited ways in which it, that history was promoted in Red Dead Redemption 2. Mm. So I was kind of saying to myself, I was reading, you know, your analysis of Rockstar Recommends and Rockstar Newswire. I was like, oh, they kind of, they mentioned this stuff for Red Dead Redemption 2 but here it is in Red Dead Redemption 1 you know a game that I didn't think about as in the same way in the way that we think about it now as kind of this historical narrative I didn't think about it like that uh, when the game came out I wasn't aware of the promotional material and yet you know I was reading it saying to myself oh yeah okay so this kind of thing that they were doing for Red Dead 2 they had already established they staked their claim here for promotion Mm -hmm. of Red Dead 1 so I think that consistency uh, helps a lot, right? It, it's kind of like if you were to do a full-blown analysis of Red Dead 2, it would just be kind of repeating yourself, I feel like, in, in a lot of ways. Yeah, and yeah, and, and part of the fact that there was just less to talk about, and I do talk about it a little bit in, in the the kind of the epilogue, but yeah, I, I felt like I, I talked about it sort of to the extent that I was happy with, because as you say, there is so much consistency, and I don't know how much of that consistency comes from the fact that they are... They are tied so much to the fact this has to be John Marston's backstory, right? The fact that even in, in Red Dead 2, you spend so much time, like, d- just la- literally laboring as John Marston at the end of that game. Like, I think <laughs> You that... think you're done after 40 yeah. hours of Arthur Morgan, and yet there's another 20 it's, hours. Uh... Yeah. Yeah, there's always more kind of nails to hit into the the, the timber in the house <laughs> or whatever, you know. But yeah, and it's it's a it, the fact that that parallels like the end of Red Dead One, you know, all of these kind of things. So yeah, I I don't know whether it's the, just the fact that you know because expectations were set because they sort of announced themselves so clearly with the first Red Dead and and you know people were expecting a follow up even if it was going to be a prequel and it always had to be a prequel because Red Dead 1 took place way too late anyway for the story they were trying mm-hmm. to tell but they were always confined to it having to end at a certain point and clearly their interpretation their sort of view of what the western is what the kind of western they're interested in telling like that hasn't changed so as you say what would be the point of re-performing all of this stuff like here's rockstar as historian what we have to say because they've done it and it, you can it's laid bare in either the stuff that's still on their website or on you know, in, in the game itself so now it was like here's the characters you know we can do these expansive developer interviews we can still do these kind of um you know, they still made like great artwork and all the kind of usual like pseudo historical stuff that like the, the kind of compendium of zoological creatures and things but I think what they were trying to do so much because they'd already proven their sort of yeah they 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 claim as American historian or American Western historian with Red Dead One is so much of it was about selling the open world because it was so much of that game's promotion was the spectacle, the spectacle of the open world and how big and how how much stuff there was. That was really the kind of the the through line. It was like we took what we we knew with Red Dead and we just amped this up, but mm-hmm. we didn't really change the substance. It's just now there's more stuff for you to go and see and do. So yeah, why do you need all this kind of words and and research and, and film? They they don't need it. People want to play a rock star western game. Yeah. So they were yeah. already bought in at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, um, speaking of Rockstar, speaking of their brand, you know, they're kind of famously 
tight-lipped about their development process. They are famous for having basically a closed shop, you know, between development of games and, you know, they really only open up right as a game is about to be released. Uh, We are recording on the 19th of September. This is the morning after uh, we have had the major uh, kind of leak of Rockstar Games, kind of one of the biggest leaks in game history. Uh, in mm-hmm. which a uh, kind of anonymous Reddit user uh, posted uh, dozens and dozens of videos featuring uh, kind of alpha build footage of GTA 6. So I'm just curious, what do you think of this? What do you, what do you think it says about Rockstar? What are your kind of initial impressions about this massive leak uh, from this famously kind of close-knit, tight-lipped company? Yeah, I mean, my my kind of initial thought when I when I saw it, I, I've been trying to kind of stay away from looking at it too much because I sort of I think like a lot of fans who seem to be just you know judging by you know Twitter, people are kind of disappointed that they've had that moment ruined for them of like when the trailer drops, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but I just feel it, it sucks for the developers, like yeah. really, really sucks for the people who've been like laboring over this for you know who, who knows how how many how many years to have it kind of come out that way um yeah it, it sucks but as you say it's even it even it's even stranger because yeah rocks are and yeah that's even what i write about in the book is the fact that they only talk to the press they only talk when they want to talk when they have something that they want to share so this is um yeah this is kind of an, an ethic level of kind of violation in, in lots of different ways for the way it's sort of sharing these things that you know are, are not quite ready to to be shared um but i, I think it's it's just such an anticipated game, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and that's not, but you know, by any means are kind of like saying that this is an okay thing to do because it's really, really not, but it's, it's just such an anticipated game that any morsel of information that kind of breaks through and, you know, with, with the, um, the, the kind of revelations that were sort of circulating before before these videos of maybe having a, a woman as one of the kind of protagonists. It's been a thing since before GTA Five came out. You know, oh, you could, are they going to finally have like a, this? This is this is the the revolutionary moment in gaming. It's the Rockstar to finally put a woman like protagonist in in one of their games. This is the, this is it. You know, the thing we should be aspiring for. Um, but yeah, so even even before all of this, that those little snippets that kind of came out, I can't remember when it was, you know, maybe a couple of months ago, that there was going to be two playable protagonists, it's going to be set in Miami, um, that, you know, what was really, really um, interesting or kind of indicative to me was that it was like, oh, and it's going to be sort of loosely based on Bonnie and Clyde. Yes. Yes, so here so, we are. Dan Hauser is gone, right? Dan Hauser <laughs> is uh, off doing something else. Sam Hauser's still there, but Dan Hauser is kind mm-hmm. of the origin point for a lot of this kind of history, cinema, what have you. Mm. And yet, even after he's gone, we have this kind of reference to America's past, but then also kind of direct reference to an American cinema classic, Bonnie and Clyde. I think that. Yeah. What do you think of that? What I mean, what does that tell you? What? It's 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 perfect and disappointing in equal measure, right? I mean, it's, it's the least surprising thing because, of course, if you're going to have a woman, it has to be only through the prism of something that's already been done in cinema, right? You can't just be a woman character, a brand new woman character in her own right. It's got to be a woman character that fits the blueprint of something that's already got like the seal of approval from being a really really famous film. So I think that's that's the the kind of the yeah the weird sort of initial feeling that I have about it. I mean. 
why why do we want why do we expect that you know what is a woman being at the center of a rockstar game going to achieve is I, I don't have don't have an answer to that question i have no idea what to expect from that when you know you have this company that is just you know almost synonymous with the kind of misogyny and stuff that you can do in these games i'm genuinely curious um what just putting a woman at the center you know and it's like just just in the same way of you know just cha- changing the the kind of the race or ethnicity of a character just changing the gender of a character like is that meaningfully going to change anything and then yeah as i said the fact that it's clearly being done again through the prism of kind of established popular culture <laughs> is that a good sign that we're going to be seeing anything that is a kind of meaningful engagement with kind of contemporary you know if it is a kind of contemporary set maybe possibly seems to be a contemporary set sort of game um you know is looking back to the past and the cinematic past really going to be the key that unlocks this? I don't know. I mean, yeah. we, we we know basically, even despite all of this, we know basically nothing yeah. about this game. And, you know, great, cool. When they want to announce it and unveil it to the world, we'll, everyone will be waiting right, to, see, to see what it is that they do. Um, me alongside all of them, because I'm really interested to see yeah. what they come up with next. Yeah. I, uh, it just so fascinated me you know, to have that, well, to be reading your book and then also have them talking about Bonnie and Clyde. I was just like, boy, here they go again. <laughs> here, you know, it's like the GTA San Andreas meme, you know, here we go again. This is the same stuff yeah. over again, <laughs> even though Dan Hauser's gone, you know, mm-hmm. and you know, maybe he had some significant influence on the development, early development of this game and the story that's completely possible, but yeah, I guess we'll just have to wait and see like everybody else. And, you know, I thought, you know, it's kind of interesting to me reading this book, um, you know, thinking about kind of the long history of American um, history being written through uh, popular culture. I think, you know, you make the point kind of again and again in the book that it's not necessarily rock stars fault that these kind of tropes keep appearing um, mm. You know, they are, again, heavily influenced by American cinema. They're heavily influenced by um, American, you know, popular fiction. Uh, you know, the book Blood Meridian comes up several times. Um, mm. So it's not necessarily their fault that they are uh, kind of repackaging these tropes for video games, but they do have the potential to do something different, right? They don't necessarily have to you know, present the history in this way. They don't have to present American society in this way. And I'm wondering if that cycle will be broken in GTA six, what we've seen so far, I couldn't tell you the Bonnie and Clyde stuff doesn't bode well, but I do wonder if, you know, like, could they do something different? Could it be different? Could it have meaningful representation of different groups and not just kind of the traditional, you know, uh, Anglo-American white male narrative about America, society, and history. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, what you were saying is that, you know, in the sense that it's not just their responsibility. I didn't want the book to just be me kind of wagging my finger and sort of saying, oh, look, this is all terrible. As much as I'm kind of trying to sort of point out, look, this is this is what they're doing in relation to, you know, the, the broader kind of complexity of stuff. And they have made, as you say, they have made decisions about what to do when they could make decisions to do other things. Um, so the way that I kind of wanted to end the the book on something a little bit more hopeful, even in just like a couple of sentences about, this is one of the biggest companies with 
one of the you know huge amounts of resources huge amounts of kind of fan dedication um as much as that you know you know marxism and wayne sometimes when people are annoyed about gta online or reddit online or whatever they they are a company with just like so much money so much power so much potential to and and you know these games are fantastic games right they are so grand and spectacular and the ability to do what they what they offer like they are amazing gaming experiences there's absolutely no kind of like denying that so i kind of yeah just wanted to be a bit more hopeful of like if they could just if any, if there could be any decisions made if there could just be a change of perspective in terms of who the company wants to see is important what kind of stories they want to tell what kind of history could they and sort of we like what could we possibly imagine like we could get these games that you know could do just so many other things yeah. and it's not as if there's not great stories that are or histories that are waiting to be told and you know for, for a company just to sort of I, I know game companies are risk averse you know I get it and I'm sure that for all me sort of saying this very you know utopian kind of sentiment there's <laughs> going to be fans going to be gamers who are going to absolutely lose it at the thought of a, a woman and probably already have lost it at the yeah. thought of a woman at the center of a Grand Theft Auto game as they do with a, the center of any game yeah. historical or otherwise but you know all it maybe takes is one company to just say well we're just kind of going to double down on this and, and do it and to just find other stories find other films yeah. to base your games on yeah. right you don't know no one's saying you have to stop doing that no one's kind sure. of saying to there change the films. approach yeah. other films are available <laughs> um other books are available other things are available so yeah I, I i don't know i i i kind of try maybe sort of to remain hopeful but yeah from from what we know who knows how hopeful we actually we should be um yeah yeah okay well on that somewhat hopeful note <laughs> that brings us to our end of our episode. Esther, thank you so much for joining me. No, it's been great talking to you. Thanks for having me. So Esther's book, again, is Rockstar Games in American History, Promotional Materials and the Construction of Authenticity. Uh, and this is published by DeGroyder Press. And you can find out more information about this book, uh, where to purchase it, and then also uh, where you can have your institution uh, purchase it for you in case you're an academic uh, by going to DeGroyder.com. Uh, so good luck with the rest of promotion of this book. I, I hope it sells a lot of copies. I hope uh, the institutions pick it up. I think it is a wonderful addition to kind of growing literature, uh, have historical games. Uh, and, you know, it's kind of one of these academic books that I've been anticipating for a very long time, I feel like. And it, it's <laughs> delivered. So uh, two thumbs up. Good work, Esther. Good. Thanks. I'm glad it, glad it didn't disappoint. <laughs> All right, until next time, listener, goodbye.